Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala Rasulillah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I want to welcome everyone to a very special uh, Ramadan prep episode. And it's going to be a little bit of a controversial topic uh, for those who read the title uh, from the outset. So the title of this episode is No Goals Ramadan, a controversial proposition to set you up for the best Ramadan and post Ramadan ever. Now, who amongst us has a post Ramadan dip? If you ask most people, they'll say, I go, I get to a certain level during Ramadan. I get to this high, high level during the month of Ramadan. And then after Ramadan, I get this post Ramadan dip. Now, what ends up happening is we go into the month of Ramadan. Uh, we pray, we fast, we read Quran, we do all these different things. And then Ramadan ends. And then we rinse off all of the different actions all the different habits we created during the month of Ramadan, and then we repeat. So it's basically Ramadan, rinse, and repeat. Now, what ends up happening? For a lot of us, we just go with the flow. So, you know, there's more activities in the Masajid, we're going with the flow. But then some of us who want to get more out of Ramadan and we understand, hey, we need to actually actually be goal oriented. We need to set objectives for ourselves. They will make a goal or action list. And then once that's completed at the end of Ramadan, what happens next? Now what? Your Iman, you get a Iman boost during the month of Ramadan, especially in those last 10 nights of Ramadan. You end up getting that Iman boost Ramadan ends, now what? You're avoiding haram. So during the month of Ramadan, uh, you avoid more things that are haram and maybe certain bad habits that you used to have. So you avoid those things. Ramadan ends, now what? So this reminds me of you know certain colleagues that I have uh, certain people that I came up with as students who went into certain professional faculties. And man, these people worked so hard, man. They worked, I know uh, some particular people, they worked very, very hard to get into a professional faculty. And their hopes and their dreams were tied into attaining uh, this position uh, to get into that professional school, whatever it may be. Once they got into that professional school, Many of these students, many of uh, these people that I knew personally, they went into a state of depression. They went into depression. Uh, and some of them even afterwards, so even after they graduated that professional school, they were in a state of depression. And some of the depression was actually pretty bad. Uh, they, you know, it, it went into certain uh, um, places where it was very, very dark for them. And uh, there's people that I know that even went to the uh, level of self-harm. Okay, so we're talking about addiction. We're talking about uh, many things that can cause you self-harm. So what happened? What happened to these people? They attained that goal. And once they attained that goal, it's as if they lost their purpose. 
you know, they put all their stock in climbing and struggling so hard to attain that goal. But once it happened, they didn't know what to do with it after. It, it wasn't a, uh, there wasn't a sustained payoff that they were looking for. Now, in Ramadan, why can't we uh, sustain the habits after Ramadan? So during the month of Ramadan, we're able to enjoying a lot of different habits we're able to do a lot of different good things as we mentioned we're going to the masajid we're doing all of these uh blessed things praiseworthy things but how come we can't sustain it after ramadan or we can't get similar peaks uh why is it afterwards people will indulge in more haram isn't allah SWT watching you the same way he was watching you during the month of ramadan what are things that happened to us during the month of Ramadan. Okay, we fast. What do we do during the month of Ramadan? Well, we uh, control ourselves. Uh, we abstain from basic necessity of food and drink from sunrise to sunset. Uh, we connect to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala through Kalam Allah, the speech of Allah. So Allah speaks to us during the month of Ramadan more because we are willing to connect more to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. We are in the masajid. We are in the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, we uh, engage in more salah and more dua. So we are worshipping Allah more and we are conversing with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala more. So Allah is speaking to us. We are speaking to Allah and we are in the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we are connecting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on so many levels during the month of Ramadan. And so we should, we should now uh become we should continue to connect with allah right and we should now through that process be more humble uh we should be more grateful uh we should have some more self-control and discipline you know the the muslims should actually be the most disciplined group of people those who partake in the month of ramadan they should be the most disciplined people. They should be the most cognizant of nutrition, what they put into their bodies. They should be the most cognizant of uh, being physically fit, of uh, making sure that they don't have any bad habits. They should be the first ones to quit smoking. They should be the first ones, if they find out a habit is bad for you or self-destructive, that they stop those habits. So are we the most self-disciplined uh, and we have the most amount of self-control? Uh, we should, uh, when we're praying in Salah and so many times during the month of Ramadan and up in Qiyam and Tarawih and, you know, we're crying in Dua together with our Muslim, fellow Muslim brothers and sisters, we should have a now lasting sense of loyalty to the Ummah, a sense of concern to the Ummah. We should. And so we don't do that, not so much. It doesn't last. It's more of a temporal change. And we do this all the time. Ramadan, rinse and repeat. So I'm gonna give you an example of the nature of human beings. We are uh, sold on the idea of attaining low-hanging fruit. So low-hanging fruit, something that is easy uh, in terms of effort, and then you get a payoff. Uh, we are drawn towards things like that, 
okay? And uh, and this is the nature of, of, of most human beings. Most people are like this. We're designed like this. So for example, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you that there's a new project that everybody needs to get on board with, okay? We wanna raise money for starving, amputated orphans in the developing war, world, okay? Now, no one's gonna go against that, right? No one's gonna get uh, go against uh, raising money for starving, amputated orphans in the developing world. And let's, let's get everybody involved, okay? We need to raise a lot of money uh, we're going to get celebrities involved. Uh, we're going to uh, get uh, social media, like, you know, the uh, online celebrities involved. Uh, we're going to spread messages as much as we can, like all the posts about this project. Uh, you even yourself donate some money. Uh, you message, uh, you know, people on social media. You're, 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 you're filming yourself. Uh, you're taking selfies and selfie videos of raising money. And then you see this project is, uh, you know, such a huge success. Millions of dollars raised. Wow, man. Millions of dollars raised. Such a beautiful. You see the images of all these impoverished orphans on the screen. And then you see now these millions of dollars that you raised. Um, uh, pictures of people taking that food and helping these, uh, you know, orphans that are starving. Okay. So everyone's very, very happy. You do that, that's it. You may not now, and most people now won't be compelled to do anything more after that, okay? But maybe there are some harder questions that need to be asked and some more harder realities that need to be faced and some more harder challenges that need to be taken on. Why are all these orphans First of all, why are they orphans and why are they so poor and why are so many of them amputated? So then when we look at the condition and we realize the situation, for example, of people in the developing world, okay, they are actually historically and to this day exploited by the quote unquote developed world. So I remember, uh, you know, just this past week looking at an old documentary by John Pilger where he was discussing how, uh, you know, there's all these big, these big grandiose fundraising projects like Live Aid that they did in 1985 uh, and uh, this Red Nose Day that they did where it was like uh, basically comic relief where in one day they raised uh, 12 million pounds. Okay, so they raised... Uh, not well. They basically, over the time of this whole project, raised 12 million pounds. He said that money alone was already flowed back to developed uh, countries. So developed countries already had that money flow back to them. And if we look at recent statistics, if we look at some recent statistics in 2012, the last year uh, that we have recorded data of this of this flow of money, uh, developing countries received a total of one point three trillion dollars in aid okay from developed countries okay so the rich let's say rich western countries gave 1.3 trillion dollars in aid so let's all give ourselves a pat on the back let's all take a knee now it's time to relax you've done good you don't have to think about anything anymore we did a, such a great job 1.3 trillion dollars that same year 
3.3 trillion dollars flowed from those developing countries to these developed countries okay and if we look at the stats from 1980 to uh, 2012 16.3 trillion dollars has flowed from the developing countries to the rich countries okay so rich countries aren't developing poor countries poor countries are developing rich countries okay you know 4.2 trillion dollars in interest payments alone interest payments alone flowed from developing countries to developed countries so they're paying back interest on loans that the masses of people don't even know that this they took these loans out in the first place or why they needed to take these loans out many of the times the, the uh, they were forced to take these loans out under political pressure or you know other um uh, you know, uh, reasons that aren't beneficial to their society. For example, like taking massive, massive loans uh, to fight in wars with each other, and then you're paying interest uh, on these uh, massive, massive loans, okay? Uh, they're, the way that a lot of these developed countries exploit these developing countries is that they're illegally set up tax shelters, so they use a lot of trade misinvoicing, and so they don't declare or they hide a lot of the income or the exploitation that occurs or that they're able to get away with in a lot of these developing countries. So there's a lot of reasons that we can go to, okay? But if we look into the why, that's a, a more harsher reality. That's a more harder challenge to deal with, but you're because you're talking about now not just creating a feel-good project or event or a concert that everyone can just feel good about and like you, you know sing kumbaya together and then giving donations no you're talking about fundamentally changing an uh unjust system okay so another harder question why are their limbs amputated well war and uh are is uh is war something that is profiting them or is war something that is profiting the developed countries? Well, who are the biggest suppliers of weapons? Who are the biggest supplier of weapons? It's these uh, developed countries. The, great, the, the greatest suppliers of weapons worldwide are the five permanent members of the Security Council. United States, United Kingdom, France, Russia, and China. Why are so many of them orphans because of war? Why are so many of their limbs amputated? It's because of war. It's because of this system that is exploiting them. So whatever, uh, you know, you know, aid project, whatever we're doing, it's like you're taking a spoon to, uh, to the, the ship is sinking and there's water leaking into the boat. And you're taking a spoon and you're just taking the spoon and you're trying to uh, like take the water out of this boat. So there's a big difference, okay, uh, from being good and doing good, okay? Changing the system and living by a just system is harder than reaching the goal on top of like a, a fake thermometer. Like, you know, when they're doing... Uh, fundraising and they and they're trying to get the thermometer up to the top 
Okay, it's like we got to get to the top. We got to get to the top, and it'll give you imagery, imagery. It's it's much easier to reach the top of that thermometer and raising funds than it is to change a system. It's much difficult to be a good person, a just person who stands up for justice rather than just doing good. Because doing good can be done by bad people. Bad people can do, they do good things all the time. They do good things and because they love doing good things. Actually, bad people love doing good things because they exploit the good things that they do. And a lot of people get fooled. They say when they look at people who are um, uh, exploit the system, and are able to unjustly, uh, you know, um, harm a lot of people through their actions. Uh, they're able to use a lot of smoke and mirrors of good actions, good works. Okay, give give a few billion dollars here, give a few million, make a charity here. Uh, you know, do some of these things that are superficially very, very um, uh, alluring to people. The other thing is, is that. Uh, I, I, like I said, a person who does good does not mean that they don't do bad. And, and a lot of times people uh, can, uh, don't understand that a person who uh, is fundamentally um, exploiting a system, they don't do everything evil. There's nobody who's pure evil. They do significant things that uphold a certain system. Okay. So, for example, I'll give you an example, uh, you know, especially that can hit home for us as Muslims. That uh, during this time of Jahiliyyah, when our Rasul came with the message of Islam, the Mushrikeen had a lot of praiseworthy traits. They did have a lot of praiseworthy traits. They weren't pure evil. But our Rasul wasn't there for them just to do all good things, but for them to be good. For them to be good uh, by uh, obeying the deen of Allah completely wholeheartedly. And of course, good actions, doing good things has a limited scope. Okay, it can be goal oriented. Once you do that, it's finished. But being good means that you do good things as a result of who you are. You're compelled to do more. So it's not like you do by being a good person. You don't just relegate. Okay, I'm doing good. And also not only do you do good. Uh, it's uncharacteristic for you to do bad or harm others. It's uncharacteristic for you to do that. And we can see this encapsulated in the hadith of our Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam that's mutafakan alayhi that is in Bukhari and Muslim where the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam says whoever believes in Allah and the last day should speak good things or keep silent. Think about this. Whoever believes in Allah on the last day should say, speak good things, say good things or remain silent. Whoever believes in Allah on the last day should be courteous and generous to his neighbor. Whoever believes in Allah on the last day should be courteous and generous to a traveler. So subhanAllah, what, what is the Messenger of Allah saying? If you believe in this, is this, if this is who you are, then the byproduct of that is goodness. And protecting people from harm and evil. That's just naturally a byproduct. That's just a condition. That's just a function of a person uh, who is good rather than a person who just maybe does good. Now, we make a you know, we can make a checklist of what we do during the month of Ramadan. So we hopefully we're praying minimally 
five times a day and we're fasting. So that's pretty much it. That's all really much, uh, pretty much all you have to do. Some of us, we do more. Some of us are going to the Masajid, Taraweeh, uh, reading the Quran, and there's goals and there's worksheets and there's checklists of, okay, we want to read the Quran, this many surahs, memorize surah, uh, do this adhkar, you know, there's all these different checklists that we're, that, that we're checking off. But what is the reason why we fast? Why, what is the reason? Is it just in and of itself? Fast during the month of Ramadan, full stop. You've accomplished that goal. Allah tells us in Surah Al-Baqarah, Ayah 183, O you who believe, observe fasting, okay, as it was prescribed to the people before you. It's prescribed to you as it was prescribed to the people before you. لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ so That you may become a person of piety. You can be a person of God consciousness. So as if the fasting is a means for us to attain something else. And that something else perpetuates other uh, different types of actions, uh, different types of thinking, different types of emotions. Okay, so it's very important for us to grasp this concept. It's, you know, month of Ramadan is a means, not an end. It shouldn't be the end. That's why we treat it like an end goal. That's why it's Ramadan, rinse and repeat. Because we look at it as an end goal. Okay, I finished the Quran. Yes, there are things that we do during the month of Ramadan that are very praiseworthy. Many of the Salaf, they said that uh, the, the right that the Quran has on you during the month of Ramadan is that you complete it at least once during the month. You know, things like that. But there is a purpose. There is actually a deeper meaning and purpose behind uh, fasting. Because why is in this particular ayah and 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 in uh, the reasoning why is that so important? Why is taqwa so important? Well, uh, it's so important that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala tells us in Surah Al Maidah, ayah twenty seven, that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala accepts only from the people of taqwa. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala accepts from the people of taqwa. So your deeds, your sacrifices. Uh, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is accepting of those people of taqwa. What does that mean, man? Like, think about that in a, for a second. That means there's, again, a difference between doing good and being good. Because a person who doesn't have taqwa can do good, but is it, but is it accepted? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he tells us, in Allah yuhibbul muttaqeen, that Allah loves the people of taqwa. Okay? So, the creator of the heavens and the earth love the people of taqwa and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to be those people Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ordained for us an entire month of Ramadan so we could be the people of taqwa and so that Allah could love us this is the love that Allah has for his creation and this is the character trait that we need this is uh, the people that we need to become. This is the state that we need to achieve for us uh, to, to get that love from Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala tells us also. So that was uh, in Surah Tawbah, Ayah Four, Surah Al-Araf, Ayah uh, One Twenty Eight. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala tells us that that the successful end, so the successful end, the su- successful outcome 
are for the people of taqwa. Okay. Uh, and similar ayat, the best end result is gained by taqwa. Man, subhanAllah. All of these benefits by reaching the state of taqwa and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made this entire month of Ramadan so we can reach that state. Okay. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in addition to that has given protection to these people of taqwa. And in Surah Al-Imran, Ayah 120, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, but if you are steadfast and have taqwa, their scheming will not harm you in any way. Taqwa is a protection. See, all there's so many benefits from attaining this state of becoming a person of taqwa. You know, one of the things that um, people have a difficulty doing is making decisions. Okay. In general, in general, people have a, a, a difficulty making decisions. And I want you to think about this. When you are in your most helpless state, you become indecisive. Your most helplessness is associated with indecision. So, for example, have you seen somebody or you maybe have experienced this yourself where you say to yourself, I am so overwhelmed, I don't know what to do. I am so stressed out, I don't know what to do. Have you ever been in that situation? Have you ever been? Uh, inshallah, like uh, I'll try to view the comments if I can here and there, uh, you know, try to engage more. I know generally speaking, we don't, but I'm asking you questions. If you want to answer, you can answer, inshallah. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so the most, help, the most helpless you can be is indecisive. You don't know what to do. You don't know what the truth is. You don't know what to follow. You don't know how, how to get out of your situation. Sometimes you don't know what's right and what's wrong. Okay. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in Surah Al-Anfal, Ayah 29, O oh, you who believe, if you have taqwa of Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you discrimination, the ability to discriminate between what is right and what's wrong, and a way to get out of every difficulty and erase your bad deeds from you and forgive you. That state of taqwa, okay, if you have taqwa, gives you that ability uh, to differentiate between what is good and what is bad. What decision you should make. He gives you that furqan. He gives you that criterion. Okay. Uh, of what what you should do. And thereby, think about this. Uh, you're going to be able to, if you know what to do. Uh, think, think about this, just logically speaking. If you know what to do in situations, uh, you can get out of bad situations, right? You can get out of like a bad situation if you know what to do. And uh, in addition to that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because you have the criteria, you know what is right and you know what is wrong, you know what side of history you should stand on, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to erase your bad deeds and he's going to forgive you. This is, this is how important taqwa is, okay? Taqwa is a state of God consciousness that you are aware of your creator, Okay. Being aware, okay, of your creator is such a powerful influencing effect on your mindset and what you do. I want you to think about how your behavior completely changes 
when somebody else, when somebody's in the room. Okay, when somebody's in the room, think about it, how your uh, behavior completely changes. Imagine if somebody you really, really want to impress is in the room. Okay, maybe it's somebody you want to marry. Okay, this might uh, uh, hit home a little bit harder for some of the younger audience. Somebody you want to marry. Okay, somebody you want to marry walks into the room. Think about how everything changes, man. Everything changes. You start looking at yourself in a completely different lens. Okay, and you you just you're making all the adjustments. You're talking in a specific way. You're um, you know presenting yourself in a specific way. Everything about you changes. You want to impress this person so badly. Okay, uh, somebody with authority comes in. Think about it when a police officer walks into the room. Okay, I think everyone has this thing where they're like, it doesn't matter. You haven't done anything. Okay, you're completely innocent. A police officer walks in the room. And your nose starts to bleed. You know what I mean? Like you are freaked out. A police officer walks in the room. Okay, they're they're you know stuff is clanging everywhere. You got you know they have the gun uh, to the side. So a person who has consciousness of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, okay, uh, this fear of Allah, the recognition of the names and attributes of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, this longing to be close to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. Uh, being aware of the presence of Allah, that has a profound effect. That is a profound, that's a person, a person of taqwa then. Think about that difference. A person who gives from a state of taqwa, okay, I'm conscious of Allah, and I give in a state of taqwa, and a person who gives uh, by just do it's a good action on the surface. But what is the system that created that action? Maybe it's your, it's your nafs. Maybe it's like, you know, whatever, you know, superficial reason. Maybe it could even be to make yourself feel good. I feel good by giving somebody, uh, you know, something. Okay. So, yeah, you're, you're, you can please your nafs by doing that because if you felt pain by giving somebody something, you wouldn't do it. So this is a natural way Allah SWT has created us. When you help a fellow human being, you do feel good. So taqwa, uh, a person of taqwa, uh, as we mentioned before, is guided by the truth. They're guided by the truth. And it's a different operating system. There's a different cascade. There's a different flow from a person who operates from the basis of taqwa than a person who does good things from another source. Uh, Ibn Mas'ud, عنه, he once made a statement. He said, you are living in a time in which desires are controlled by the truth. There will come a time in which, in which the truth will be controlled by desires, and we seek refuge in that time. Subhanallah, as if like this is a statement that we say, okay, this is your present time. Okay, this is a statement pre predicting the present time. That a lot of people's desires, what they do, that's what that's what the reality is, right? It's like you have your own reality. Everyone has their own reality, okay? Uh, and there's nothing like the truth anymore. So there he's saying, we, we're, we're living in a time that we do things based on what is the truth, okay? But you're going to find a time, you're going to be in a time where people's desires is what's going to control uh, the reality. This is what people will do is based on people's uh, desires, okay? So now when we look at this month of Ramadan, okay, and if we think that just fasting alone is what the point of Ramadan is. Just depriving yourself 
of food and drink is what the point of Ramadan is, then we are completely missing out on the point of Ramadan. We are completely missing out of the spirit of Ramadan, the essence of Ramadan. Rasul he says, if one doesn't give up false speech and acting according to it, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not in need of him giving up his food and drink. What? You mean Ramadan is supposed to change the way I think, the way that I feel, the way that I interact with people? The early Muslims used to say that the easiest part of fasting is giving up food and drink. That's the easiest part. You know, for many of us, we thought, that hey, these long hours of fasting is the hardest part. If that was true, then our behavior for the rest of the year would be changed, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be changed for the rest of the year? Wouldn't there be more harmony in the Muslim community? There wouldn't be so many scandals and there would be this love and appreciation. There would be less backbiting uh, after the month of Ramadan if that was the hardest thing. The easiest part is giving up the, the food and drink. The harder part is changing the system of who you are. Uh, in another hadith, uh, Ibn Majah, Rasul uh, said, perhaps the fasting person gets nothing from his fast except hunger. And perhaps the praying person at night during the month of Ramadan gets nothing from his standing in prayer except sleepiness. Except sleepiness. You know, subhanAllah, we know that the devils are chained during the month of Ramadan. Okay, so you know, according to the opinion of the scholars, it's not all the devils, but a certain amount of devils is chained during the month of Ramadan. So, generally speaking, there is less temptation to do haram things, to do wrong things, to sin. But what happens? What happens during the month of Ramadan? Our nature and our character, our nafs, are still there. We're still who we are. A lot of the shayateen are gone, but you are who you are. You're still who you are. You know, so you might find somebody who fasts during the month of Ramadan, but will still backbite, will still do haram things. Maybe it might become less, but even after the month of Ramadan, did you really change who you are? Did you really change that? Did you really develop a deeper understanding? Ibn Qayyim, he says, worldly deeds done by the people who really know Allah SWT, they become acts of worship for them. Well, the ritual acts of worship become customary acts of worship for the general people. So what Ibn Qayyim is saying is that like just the general things that you do in life, uh, like for example, your sleep, your sleep, everyone sleeps, you know, the believer, the non-believer, everybody sleeps. But for the people who really know Allah, even their sleep, even their eating, even their drinking, becomes an act of worship because everything all the actions are cascading are flowing from a, a state of this god consciousness of knowing allah subhanahu wa ta'ala whereas uh for the general people who don't know allah the ritual acts like praying like fasting like hajj they become like customs it becomes a very very superficial exercise okay because very very there's a lot of superficiality okay so uh, the, Ramad the, the real reason for Ramadan uh, is for us to, uh, to change that mindset, to change that character, to change that state, okay? The, you know, to change 
um, you know, our programming. Okay, and when we lose that, okay, when we lose that, then, uh, th then again, it just becomes an exercise in being hungry or being sleepy or just going through those motions. Okay, so we know it is an obligation. Ramadan for sure. Fasting during the month of Ramadan is an obligation. Okay, but what happens to us? What is happening to us in uh, in, in that state? Uh, in our uh, in our character, our Rasul sallallahu he he said that taqwa of Allah in good manners, okay, is what takes most of the people away from hellfire. Okay, so these are the things that are the most responsible for taking the people into jannah is the taqwa of Allah and good manners, and Evil use of the tongue and evil use of the private parts are the reason uh, that takes most people uh, into hellfire. So what takes people into Jannah, that takes, saves people from hellfire is taqwa and good manners. What uh, takes you into the hellfire is evil use of your tongue and your private parts. Okay, so what does that mean? That means that those are two different people. A person who has evil use of their tongue and evil use of their private parts can still fast during the month of Ramadan. I want you to think about this. A person who evil has evil use, okay, who does this, who, who, who does this type of evil, they can still fast during the month of Ramadan. They can still pray. They can still go for taraweh. They can still do all of those different things. But have they changed? The mindset because the a person who has taqwa of Allah and who has good manners is different. Their programming is different. It's very, very bizarre for them. It's very uncomfortable for them to do those types of sins. Okay. Uh, it's unnatural for them to do that. Okay. What's another reason uh, that we fast during the month of Ramadan? If we look a few ayat later in the same surah in ayah 185, لَعَلَّكُمْ تَشْكُرُونَ so that perhaps you may be grateful. Okay. So again, another state, a person who is grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a person who is in a state of shukr, a person who is constantly turning to Allah, who is grateful in times of ease and in times of hardship. It's a different type of mentality. So what I'm talking about, I'm talking about something that is that we need to really sit down and think about. It's not something that you can just know a definition and just move forward. Because what I'm talking about is the difference between systemic Iman, okay, versus situational Iman or superficial Islam. I'm talking about two different things. I'm talking about systemic Iman, okay? Systemic Iman means that you have a more stable identity. Your identity is very, very stable. It takes more effort, 100%. You need to think, you need to reflect, you have to look at yourself, you have to look at the world around you. You didn't you don't get you don't get intoxicated by low-hanging fruit. You take that low-hanging fruit, you eat it, and it's like, man, this is so this is so awesome. Okay. Uh so you don't get uh swept up by that because you realize it's a struggle. Okay. The real truth takes struggle versus situational iman or superficial Islam. Okay, so if you have situational Islam or superficial Islam, that uh, renders you to have an unstable identity because you go with the flow. 
oh, it's Ramadan. Everyone is, hey, I have some friends who happen to be going to the masjid. Okay, I'm going to the masjid. I happen to be the people around me fasting. I grew up, happened to fast. Okay, I'm going to be fasting. Um, but I just go with the flow. I just go with the flow, really. And um, you know the saying, to the victor, go, go the spoils? You follow the dominant ideology. So if the dominant ideology um, uh, is uh, other than Islam, you follow it. You follow the dominant ideology that's, uh, you know, that uh, that's prevailing, you know, and you just go with the flow. So your your Islam is more of a shirt that you change into from time to time. It's more of a hat that you wear occasionally. Uh, your your Iman is situational. Uh, you you went to uh, a Juma khutbah that happened to have a charismatic speaker. Man, okay, my iman goes up. Okay, Ramadan comes. Okay, certain parts of it. Okay, my iman goes up. I go to a lecture. Okay, this is so it's situational. It's situationally based. Okay, or you have the superficial Islam. Okay, so you don't really believe in, in, in anything on the inside, but because it's custom or so forth, then um, you know you just kind of go along with it, and that's uh, and and that's very unstable. It's a very unstable situation, and and to me it reminds me of the difference between. Uh, Masjid uh, uh, Masjid Quba, okay, which was known as Masjid Taqwa and Masjid Darar, okay. So Allah Subhanahu wa Taala he he talks about uh, in the Quran uh, in chapter nine, ayah one hundred seven in the Quran. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala talks about uh, these uh, you know those who have taken a masjid uh, to do mischief. So uh, this Masjid uh, Darar, Masjid Darar, was basically financed and funded uh, by uh, those who wanted to harm Islam. Okay, so their agenda was not based on taqwa. Okay, so there was this masjid project. Rasulullah went to Tabuk, and so he, when he was leaving for Tabuk, there was this masjid construction project. Okay, and I want you to think about this. You know how many quote unquote good projects uh, are in front of us that hey we should support it, and we don't think about the foundation of that project. Where is the source of uh, that project? What is the intention of that? So this particular masjid project had some very, very uh, low-hanging fruit, some very enticing things about it, uh, some things that everybody could just get on board with, okay? This project for this masjid was supposed to be like convenience for people who were old and sick uh, so that, you know, they didn't have to go all the way to Masjid Quba, but it was being financed uh, by the the Romans uh, via you know somebody who was a munafiq and it was being built by munafiqin. Okay, so they had these ulterior motives. Okay, and Masjid Taqwa, uh, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala affirmed that this Masjid Quba is different. Okay, that uh, you know the the uh, the reason behind this was that our Rasul was now. When he came back, was not supposed to be enticed or fooled by Masjid Darar, but rather they were supposed to. It was uh, unstable. He was supposed to, um, uh, you know, uh, bring it down. And Masjid Taqwa is something that uh, was supposed to remain. So the foundation of Masjid Taqwa was solid. The the foundation of Masjid Taqwa remained. That Masjid remained. So something that was based on Taqwa, Masjid Al-Quba, which was based on Taqwa, that was stable. That was supposed to last. Even though the other one sounds so good, man, it sounds so good, right? Like we're 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 doing it for poor people, for uh, people who have injuries, who you know, who orphans and elderly. So it was given all these nice, nice labels, all these superficial labels. But what was the foundation of from which it was built? 
And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he tells us uh, furthermore, in term, when we talk about this uh, difference between things that are stable, okay, things that come from a source of stability and things come, that come from a source of instability, we can also reflect upon this in Surah Al-Ibrahim, Ayah 24 to 26. Because something that is unstable is easily destroyed. Something that is stable lasts the test of time. Allah SWT tells us in Surah Al-Ibrahim, See you not how Allah sets forth a parable, a goodly word as a goodly tree, whose root is firmly fixed and branches reach to the sky, giving its fruit at all times. Think about this. What is Allah SWT saying here in this ayah? I, I, I want to pause here for a moment. This parable of a goodly word and a goodly tree, it gives its fruit at all times. It's benefiting, it's doing good. Because it's a good tree, it produces goodness all the time. It's not unnatural. It's not occasional. It's just a natural byproduct. Good tree is going to give you good fruits. And it's going to give it consistently. Thus, a good person does good deeds. A person of taqwa does good deeds. Okay? That's just who they are. And it's natural and it's all times. And so Allah SWT goes, by the leave of its Lord and Allah sets forth parables for mankind in order that they may remember. And in the following ayah, Allah SWT says, and the parable of an evil word is that of an evil tree uprooted from the surface of earth, having no stability. So the evil things that are based with uh, other than taqwa, other than la ilaha illallah, this is referring into something that is built on the foundation of la ilaha illallah. So something that is built under the foundation other than la ilaha illallah, its foundation is unstable. Its foundation, even though it can, you can see on the superficial, oh, look at all these good things. Like for example, let's raise money for impoverished nations, but let's not change the system. Don't look too hard in trying to change the system. Who you are, you have to ask yourself this question. Who I am necessitates that I have certain thoughts, and that means I should have certain feelings and actions. Who you are should do that. It's it's not, uh, you know, because again, we think after Ramadan comes, I see a very superficial sometimes uh, desire of continuing what you did during the month of Ramadan. You can't do what you did during the month of Ramadan outside of Ramadan unless you change who you are. You change fundamentally how you think. You change fundamentally your operating system. Are you doing things based on an Iman-based system? Uh, you know, there's uh, the ayah in Surah Al-Ahzab, ayah 21. That indeed in the Messenger of Allah, you have a good example. Okay. At-Tabari, he said that this was the command during the Battle of Khandaq. So during that battle, the Muslims found themselves at, you know, in a really precarious situation, man, a really tough situation. You had an army of 10,000 alliance come to destroy and eradicate the Muslim community. And so the Muslims, um, they built this trench on their most vulnerable position where this army could not, uh, you know, cross it so they could repel this army. So, uh, you know, on the other side of Medina, there was these mountains and like this rocky terrain. So they were protected naturally on one side. 
the other side they built this trench so it's called the battle of of uh Khandak, okay and so this particular battle uh they were trying to wait out the muslims so they tried to starve the muslims out they tried to put some pressure on them uh, they were they weren't able to you know cross this trench, so they were using other economic means to put uh, pressure on the Muslims, and there was a big state of fear because you had this huge army, this like the biggest army that they have ever faced, this nascent small Muslim community, this very vulnerable Muslim community, okay, that just started in Medina, uh, just trying to survive, just started getting this community going, just built like very humble, you know, masajid where like the roof didn't even have complete roofing. And so now you're in this situation where this huge army, all these different allied tribes are coming to eradicate you. And so there was a lot of fear, a lot of fear in the community. And many of them, even though they were uh, listening to the messenger, meaning that they didn't cross over to the other side, they still uh, were really cynical and pessimistic and they were complaining. So you had some of the munafiqeen, the hypocrites, uh, say that, you know, Rasul said we're going to be given, we're going to conquer the, you know, the Persian and the Roman army, okay, uh, or lands, the, their empires, and we don't even feel safe to go to the washroom. This is how they were belittling the promise of Rasul because Rasul during that during the struggle he said imagine that that he said during that during the, their time of their most weakness their most vulnerability the messenger of Allah said we're going to conquer these like superpowers and they're not even on the map yet politically speaking you know the Muslims at that time had virtually no power or influence uh, you know very much in the region nor uh, in uh, especially in the world at that time, they weren't. They couldn't even go back to their homes in Mecca at that point. So you had Munafiqin say, "We are we can't. We're, we're too afraid to even go to the washroom. What is this?" And they were as far away from the ditch as possible. Okay, they were as far away from that ditch as possible. The true Sahaba, the people of Taqwa, the people who you would see stability be established in the Ummah, they were with Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam right because he was there at the edge of the dish, like the closest a position to danger, the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was in that position. And verily in the Messenger of Allah, as Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says, you have a good example. So this was for the Sahaba that you need to be right beside the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You need to be right with him. You know, shoulder to shoulder. You need to be very close, close to him by the edge of that ditch. Now, I want you to think about this. The Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they took this deen to so many different parts of the world, right? They took it, uh, if we look at it like, you know, uh, Asham, uh, Yemen, uh, you know, we even look in the Caucasus region, everywhere where the Sahaba gave da'wah, Islam is still there today. I want I want that to soak in for a second. When we talk about stability, okay? When we talk about stability, when we talk about, you know, the, the people of taqwa and how stable it is and how just naturally you're following, like if you need to be in the uh, right beside the messenger uh, in a place that's a little bit dangerous, you're going to be there. 
you're going to be there. Uh, if wherever you go, your actions are going to have a permanent effect. They're going to, it's going to have a permanent effect wherever you go. Because a man-based system naturally produces khair and is and is a naturally a very, very stable uh, seeds of khair that you plant. So those trees have not been uprooted. The, the seeds of dawah where the Sahaba planted all over the world, they haven't been uprooted. To this day, they're still there. Wherever the Sahaba radiallahu anhum went. And that is the comprehensiveness of Islam. That's the difference when you have, when you're doing things from a base of taqwa, you don't choose A, B, C, and then that's it. Or you make a list or you make these superficial. Our end goal actually is Jannah. Our end goal is Jannah. That's the end goal. Everything is a means to attain that. That's a, that's an, a, that's a means to attain that. So it's like, it's like, for example, um, I say to you that if, you run one kilometer a day, or I give you say five kilometers a day. That's all I say. I, all I say to you is that you run five kilometers a day, you're going to win the gold at the Olympics. No, no, no. If I say to you, if you become the best athlete in running, for example, athletes, the best athletes win the gold at the Olympics. Because I could be just like an average Joe and I could run that, but I'm not training, I'm not improving in my running, I may have a bad diet, I may be doing things that are counterproductive to uh, what running does. So you're doing all these counterproductive things, doesn't mean you, even if you, uh, even if like, for example, an Olympic athlete and uh, a person who just decides to run 10 kilometers a day do the same thing every day, doesn't mean that that person who runs 10 kilometers a day is going to win the gold medal. Okay, because as an athlete has a different type of identity. A lot of things flow from somebody who's taken the mentality of being an athlete. Their diet may change. The way that they challenge themselves might change. They're always trying to improve that, uh, you know, the timing of that 10 kilometers. There's so many different things that are, are, are going to be different. So the problem is, um, my dear brothers and sisters, even when we look at the sunnah of Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, we have a very superficial practice of, of, what, of maybe what the sunnah might be. So for example, maybe a person might superficially look very good, like a, a very practicing Muslim, but there's a lot of characteristic traits that aren't Islamic. You know, maybe they're unjust, maybe they're oppressive, maybe they're tyrannical. You know, you could have somebody who has a beard and looks very, very pious and, and so forth, but uh, is uh, has many actions that aren't conducive or flow from a place of taqwa. Uh, there was, uh, there's a hadith um, where a man by the name of Bashir went to Rasul and he gave his pledge of allegiance to the Messenger of Allah He said, you know, to accept Islam. And so uh, Rasul Wasallam, uh, he gave him the conditions of Islam, uh, you know, to believe that there is no deity worthy worship except for Allah. So la ilaha illallah. He told them about salah, uh, zakah, hajj, fast, Ramadan, jihad. So Bashir, he said, I am able to perform, I'm unable to perform two of these things. Okay. Uh, I can't do uh, jihad or sadaqah. I can't do those. And uh, that, uh, and he said, the reason for this is that people believe that whoever turns his back and flees will have anger of Allah descend upon him. And I fear that if I am present, my soul would become terrified and hate death. 
Uh, as for charity, by Allah, all I have is a small, uh, you know, herd, 10 young camels, which suffice as transportation for my family and for carrying their belongings. So he had excuse. He said, you know, I don't want to be in a situation where, you know, I know these things. I might not be able to uphold that. I might not be able. So he doesn't want to take responsibility or full accountability of everything that uh, an Islamic system, Islamic based system um, demands of you. And so Rasulullah uh, closing uh, closes his hand and shook it. He says, no jihad and no charity, then how will you enter into paradise? And so this man, he responded by saying, Rasulullah I will give you this pledge. And so Rasulullah accepted his pledge. So he had to accept everything. So it's a systemic approach. You know, so, uh, you know, for example, you know, Dawah is part of uh, our deen. And I know a lot of times you go to people and you try to get them involved in Dawah, put time, energy, you know, donate to the Dawah, get involved in the Dawah, especially we need people involved in the Dawah, you know, to give people the true message of Islam uh, to both Muslims and non-Muslims. We need that. And then people, they, they don't want to take that responsibility. It's like, you know what? I don't want to take this responsibility. I don't want to give organized Dawah because what if I have to quit? And so they make this type of excuse for not to do uh to not to give dawah it's different a place of taqwa is you say okay what is demanded from me what does a person of taqwa do how does a person of taqwa behave how does a person of taqwa feel how can you pray to allah and worship money how can you pray to allah and get enamored with celebrity culture how can you go for hajj and not worry about the ummah when you see so many different people from different parts of the ummah how can you give sadaqah and not stand up to tyranny how can you fast during the month of ramadan and not withhold your tongue from evil how can you uh, sell out good people for personal gain? You know, whether it's economic gain or social gain. You know, Allah, you see a lot of that, you know, where Muslims will sell out other Muslims all the time, speak ill of other Muslims all the time. For what? What type of gain? You're fasting through the month of Ramadan, yet you cannot save your fellow Muslim from your own tongue. Maybe you can't go and save uh, you know, the Muslims that are the, like the worst, one of the worst conditions in the world for, for human beings as recognized even by the non-Muslims, okay, in Myanmar, like in Burma, you're, you, you can't go there necessarily and physically help them, but you yet you can't just hold your tongue, you know what I mean? You can't just save Muslims from your tongue, okay? Uh, you know, I remember um, uh, a brother uh, who would um, who would fast during the month of Ramadan, uh, and he, but he wouldn't pray. He wouldn't pray regularly. You know, Subhanallah. There is there are people like that. Uh, he and he's and I said, you know, why do you fast during the month of Ramadan? Like, you know, it's it's tough hours. Um, he said, you know, I have to do it. I've done it all my life. So it became a tradition for him. It was a tradition, and he couldn't break the tradition. He was doing it for such a long time. It became very very traditional. So it, it wasn't coming from a place of because you know he would miss Sarawat, which was far. And you know, I I remember uh, teaching um, one of the brothers um, 
who uh, that there was uh, the you know these tribes that apostated during the time of Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu that um, you know these tribes uh, they were going outside the fold of Islam they apostated because they would not give zakat okay and so and then I also give the example of a brother who would uh, fast but not pray and and you know what subhanallah he couldn't believe it he's like I don't believe it I, I can't believe uh, that uh, you know somebody he said if I were to give up anything. Uh, it would be fasting before prayer or it would be fasting before uh, giving zakat, okay? And the reason why he, he was thinking from that place because he didn't, he was again doing it from a piece, place of personal um, interest because he was kind of like a heavier set brother and <laughs> and fasting was very difficult for him, okay? So he was a little bit of a heavy set brother and so th- for him, fasting was difficult. So for him, the biggest sacrifice was fasting. Okay, so he was looking at it from a personal perspective. Okay, so uh, don't make our deeds tokens. We don't need tokenism uh, in Islam. We don't need Muslims to be uh, giving tokens. You know, if you are a a sincere mu'min, if you're a sincere believer, you're gonna be in a different state. The haram will be very, very different for you. There's a there's a, a lengthy story of Thalaba uh, where uh, he accidentally uh, he was one of the young companions of Rasulullah and he accidentally uh, saw a Muslim woman uncovered as he was walking by her house. Okay, and he says he said to himself, "Audu billah, how can I be a companion of the Prophet Sallallahu one who runs his errands and be so disrespectful to the people's privacy?" Okay, and so he was calling himself. Nobody saw him do this. Okay. He says, I disrespected the aura of the Muslims. Wallahi, Allah is going to send ayat and reveal and mention me with the hypocrites. This is the fear. He's like, how can I be a Muslim and do this haram? How can I do that? How can I function like this? How can I be somebody who's a moment, who's a believer, who's upholding the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who's following the messenger, who's serving the messenger uh, of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa and then do all these different things. Okay. Uh, so we need to be authentic. A muttaqi means you are authentic in your deeds. Your psalm is more authentic. It's more meaningful. Your salah is more authentic and it's more meaningful. There, it's, not, it's not tokenism. You're not contradicting it with other deeds. You're not con- contradicting it with doing so many haram things. Okay. This is the reason why people love the sahaba so much. Wherever the sahaba anhum went. No matter what the orientalists or the haters say, the Sahaba think about this. They were such a few number of people. Why is it that hundred times more of the population would accept Islam, the the lands that they went to, because they saw they were authentic, they were real, they weren't uh, uh, preaching something that they wouldn't practice. Okay, so don't we shouldn't get uh, caught in in scapegoating our condition. And what do I mean by that? You know, uh, oftentimes I'll see somebody come to a doctor and say, you know, I just have bad genes. And they'll blame something uh, like some type of like preventable health condition. So most of the diseases, by the way, that uh, we suffer for, from in Western countries is preventable diseases. So, you know, heart disease, diabetes, uh, you know, things of that sort, even many cancers, preventable. So they'll say, oh, why do you have high cholesterol? Bad genes, bad genes. Okay. How many times do you exercise uh, a week? Uh, I don't really exercise. 
what's your diet like? Uh, fried chicken, ice cream, fried ice cream, pop, you know? Okay. Um, and uh, is that what you grew up in? Yeah, yeah. This is the type of stuff that we used to eat in our house all the time. All right. No exercise. You do this. Uh, sleeping habits. Yeah, not, not, not so good at sleeping habits. So it's not bad genes. They're bad habits. You're blaming things on, and those bad habits, by the way, can have a history. So the reason may be, um, you know, you, you, you look at your, your parents, your grandparents have these types of high cholesterol, these issues is not necessarily was genetic because a lot of people will just relegate it to that. But rather, it could be like it could be just a history of bad habits. It's a history of bad habits being inherited and passed down generation after generation. Okay, so uh, we look at sometimes very superficial means and we scapegoat things a lot. And, uh, and and when we actually look at our identity and question who we are, uh, then we'll see that. It's hard to run away from yourself. When you look at yourself closely in the mirror, it's hard to run away from yourself, who you truly are. You know, a person, as I mentioned before, uh, a person who has the identity, I'm an athlete, okay? They train regularly and they live a healthy life. And yes, they can ramp up their training uh, prior to events, okay? But their, and their training can have different goals associated. But it's not limited to those goals, and they don't have behavior that contradicts their training if they're going to be a successful athlete. Okay, so what 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 should happen is that we should be in a state, we should be striving for a, a state of taqwa, and then Ramadan comes, and it's like us ramping up. It's like that intensive training before uh, an event. So we're doing that intensive training, but then afterwards we understand that identity that we should have. What does a person of taqwa do? Ramadan ends, what does a person of taqwa do? What is the identity that we should have? What are some characteristic traits that should just come naturally to me as part of my identity? If I'm an athlete, I'm going to have some natural characteristic traits that flow from me because of my identity. Uh, in Surah Al-Mu'minun, if you look at the first ayat there, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala talks about the character traits of the believers. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says that they they pray. So the believers, what naturally from the believers is what do they do? What is the natural program? What is uh, uh, you know a product of the system of a person who's a mu'min? Well, they pray, and they do it with full solemnity and submissiveness. So their heart is into it. They're focused. Their heart is into it. They're submitting to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. What else is the is a characteristic? They turn away from evil speech. They turn away from that evil talk, vain talk, falsehood. They didn't they don't get caught up in gossip. They don't just think about this. A person of taqwa, how can you be a person who went through the month of Ramadan and then uh during the month of Ramadan or after the month of Ramadan, you get caught up in gossip or you love to hear gossip or you spread and promote uh gossip. Okay. Those who pay zakat. Those who give, uh, you know, sadaqah, of course, you have your fard zakat, but what about like charity on a regular basis? If you're a person who doesn't regularly give uh, charity on a regular basis, there's something wrong with that system. 
that Iman-based system, there's something wrong in that programming. You need to upgrade, okay, your Iman-based system. They guard their, in those ayahs, they guard their chastity, okay, so they're chaste. You know, they have a sense of haya, they're modest, they refrain from evil situations or situations that can lead you down uh, a bad path, okay? Uh, they're faithful to their trust, their amanat, their, uh, their, their duties, their covenants, okay? Uh, so these are many of the characteristics of a mu'min. These are things that just flow from a state of a person who is a true believer. This flows from a state of a person uh, who has uh, taqwa. So uh, I'm going to leave you with this analogy. Okay, I'm going to uh, leave you with an analogy, and then I want you to think about this, and you can apply it to modern society uh, as you want, inshallah. Okay. I want you to imagine we live in a place called Candyland. Okay, so we live in this place called Candyland. And Candyland, man, it's such a magical place. Um, everyone has perfect smiles. Uh, everyone goes every day to work at the candy mines. And they produce all this candy to sustain Candyland. And every day they eat as much candy as their heart desires. Okay? So on the, on the surface, man, Candyland looks... Amazing. I want to I want to go to Candyland. So you look at it from the outside. Okay. And it looks like the best like it's as if you're looking at the best Instagram post you've ever seen in your life the most enticing uh, Instagram post ever known to man right Candyland. Mm. The harsh reality is, you know why everyone has perfect teeth is because all their teeth uh, have rotten and fallen out. So everyone's actually wearing dentures. Um, why does everyone look young in Candyland? Because all the older people, as you get a little bit older, there's no one beyond 30. Because by the time you reach 30, uh, you have diabetes and heart disease and you die. That's why everyone in Candyland is young. Okay. And uh, everyone is, they need to produce more candy because they need to eat more candy. So they can have more energy, so they can produce more candy. And they need to produce more candy, so they can eat more candy, so they can have more energy. Because before, when it was a little piece, few pieces of candy that gave you energy, now that's starting to wear down. Now to get that same buzz, I need more pieces of candy, okay? Now, you break this system for a month. At first, it's hard. And it's hard, you know, like you're you're used to like uh, putting in your uh, soda like 10 packets of sugar. It's like, OK, now I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to live a healthy lifestyle. So at first, it's very, very hard to do that. Very, very difficult. You know, it's like when the first few days of fasting, if you talk to people who fast, they're like, oh, the first few days, a little bit difficult, but I got into it. So the first little while was, man, it was very, very difficult. Because now um, you gotta you're gonna grow organic food. You you have a vegetable garden, you know, and you're like, man, this vegetable tastes like styrofoam. Like you know, all your taste buds are used to eating all these sugary foods. But slowly by slowly, you start tasting the vegetable and the freshness of the vegetable. And it takes time to do that too. It takes time because candies are easy, right? You just open the packet, 
candy. Open the packet, candy. This is hard, right? You you have to sit, be patient, water those vegetables, grow those vegetables, and then you know you eat that. You try to have uh, this healthy organic uh, food, and so by the end of the month, man, you feel like. Uh, you reach this goal because your goal was to just do this for one month. Okay. So your goal was just one month. I'm going to do this. I'm going to not eat any candy and, and do this diet for a month. So by the end of the month, you feel way more content. You feel healthy. Um, you created a different system. You stopped following this system of Candyland. Like you created this different system where you're exercising, uh, you're praying, you're eating well. And so now you're like in a completely different state. The month ends and you go back to be a regular citizen in Candyland. So what happened? What happened to you in that, in that, you know, going through that exercise when you just had that one month as a goal? Did you create a new identity? Can you sustain those habits afterwards unless you created a new identity, unless you change that about yourself, okay? The monthly goals that we have in Ramadan should be a means for us to attain taqwa, for us to create this iman-based system, okay? Your good works that you increase during the month of Ramadan will be a means for you to get taqwa, but then taqwa would also necessitate that you produce more good works, okay? So make Ramadan part of your identity. Make the higher objectives of Ramadan part of your identity so you can sustain it afterwards. Or else it's just going to be Ramadan, rinse and repeat. All right, my dear, um, Brothers and sisters in Islam, we hope that you have the best Ramadan and that uh, by that I mean that you attain a the best state, the best identity that you can. You become a person of taqwa, you become a person of sugar and that you sustain that. That's who you change to become uh, even after Ramadan. So we make, uh, I have this dua for myself and for all of you. And um, there are, uh, you know, many people um, worldwide that are uh, struggling right now, especially uh, those who are infected with this virus. And uh, one of my dear brothers, uh, you know, one of the students of uh, our halaqat, uh, he also has this viral infection. And uh, I'm sure there are many other people uh, who have this as well. Uh, whether they are Muslims, whether they are non-Muslims, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give uh, them all purification and to guide them to the best, to guide them to the straight path uh, and to guide them and to protect them from everything that can harm them, inshallah ta'ala. So uh, please remember everyone in your dua, uh, Ramadan, uh, you know, starts, uh, you know, from, uh, you know, from now, essentially, uh, you know, a few hours, we'll, we'll be starting the month of Ramadan. So uh, we want to extract the best from that. So again, uh, take yourself uh, from a state of just going through this as a custom or a tradition to something that is a reflection of your identity of who you are.
All right, Jazamakhir. And my dear uh, brothers and sisters, we will see you uh, at our next Life Hawk podcast on Saturday, 2 p.m. MST. We ask Allah SWT to allow us to live by the Haq. This is Life Haq. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Do I feel that the New York police are providing enough protection or do I have to have protection of my own? I look for protection from Allah.